right, and we are rolling once again. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass. And once again, we are exploring faith and pursuing grace. And in our exploration of our faith, oftentimes we reflect on our lives. We look back at things that we studied and things that we knew with great certainty in the past. And we have seen those walls come crumbling down as we have lost that certainty in positions we've held. We study, we find new positions, we look at things and ideas we held on to. And as our faith evolves, we endeavor to share that with all of you because life isn't static. Life doesn't happen in a vacuum. We're all going through it together. And if we're honest with ourselves as we go through this life, we're going to find ourselves changing. We're going to find our viewpoints changing and our positions changing. And one of the things that you and I were talking about last week, brother, um, off the air, we were just kind of visiting before we hit record, were some of the interesting passages that we've read about and some of the things that you have researched and studied and in, in writing and preparing for your new book that you're going to hopefully be releasing this year. Yeah, for the, for the next six months, it's going to be shamelessly plugged. Absolutely. And I'm even afterwards. Book. Yeah, get the book. It'll be great. Of that, I have no doubt whatsoever. But one of the things that we visited on very briefly was the story of Abraham and Isaac in the Old Testament. And that's such an interesting story. And it's a story that I know that you have used as sermon fodder in the past. It's one that I've used. Every preacher worth their salt at some point has preached about Abraham and Isaac. And that story is one when I went through my period of, of unbelief in my early 20s, late teens, early 20s, that was a story that I would often point to as proof that the God of the Bible could not be trusted, or at the very least, that the God of the Bible was a bipolar tyrant. How can the God of the Bible be a God of love if he's commanding someone, someone who's claimed to have great faith, if he's commanding them to sacrifice, to kill, to murder in cold blood, on an altar to kill his son, his only son, who was supposed to be his son of promise. How could a God be good and just if that's what God is doing? And how can Abraham be considered a good person if he's willing to do that? <laughs> that's a question that I would ask. That's a question that friends of mine that have either left faith behind for whatever reason, or they've never revered any faith whatsoever. That's a question that I've heard asked. It's a question that I would parrot and repeat and it's one that I really never had a good, solid answer for. And then last week we were kind of discussing this idea. And as we talked about it, I was like, holy smokes, that would make an amazing podcast episode. We need to talk about that on the air. Well, it's it's ironic because today, actually, I was talking to a friend of mine who is a doctor. He works at a hospital and he was telling me he wasn't violating any HIPAA laws, but he was telling me about there was about a guy who... He, uh, a patient he had today who came in and he tried to burn down his house and uh, I don't, I didn't try to kill anybody because there wasn't anybody in it, but he uh, burned down his house or started to. And uh, in the process, I think he, he, he got burned as well, or there was, I don't know, I'm sure I'm butchering all the details, but anyway, they had to rush him to the hospital. And upon evaluation, he was explaining how he was told by God to do this and to warn everyone of, you know, we're living in the last days and the Lord's about to return. And uh, he himself is another incarnation of Jesus Christ who was is coming to bring judgment. And uh, he's here to warn everybody. And this, this idea of people believing that God told them to do violence or to told, you know, tell that God told them to hurt someone or kill someone. 
is it's pretty common. And when I say common, it's not like everybody does it, but it's common in the sense of it's not unheard of, that there's always been stories, especially when you research cults and things of that nature, which I get into in my new book as well a little bit. And you research these different cult-like groups, and they have this belief that God has told them to hurt somebody else or that they feel like they're bringing justice to a certain cause. And it's interesting how people can be so convinced and truly believe that God has told them to do something like that. And this is a common passage that people appeal to to say, look, if God could tell Abraham to kill a son, God could tell me to kill somebody. And that, as you pointed out, when you were an atheist, and there are many people who are atheists today who use this story against the Bible to show how crazy the God of the Bible is by commanding his son, or or excuse me, commanding Abraham to kill his son, to murder his child. And so this passage usually doesn't, it doesn't sit well with a lot of people. When they read this passage, just the, the average person in the pew, for lack of better words, maybe they didn't go to Bible school or Bible college, or they really haven't looked at too many alternatives as to how to understand Genesis 22. They just read it and they're like, man, it just kind of sounds crazy. <laughs> and then the the other side of that coin is guys like me who, who grew up, literalist, Bible-believing Christians, and whatever the Bible says, that settles it. And we're not even going to look at much of the context other than the context that proves my presupposition. And here in Genesis 22, God told Abraham to kill his son, and Abraham was willing to do it. No matter how crazy that may sound, he was willing to do it. And if God asks us to do anything, no matter how crazy it may sound, we need to do it. So whatever conclusions we may reach from following the Bible, we need to follow through with it. Or, or by reading the Bible, we need to be willing to follow through with those conclusions. Why? Because that's the kind of faith Abraham had. No matter how crazy, no matter how strict, no matter how absurd it may seem, we need to be willing to do it. And on the surface, that preaches. That that sounds really good. Okay, that's just the kind of God we serve. If God says it, we need to do it, no matter how crazy it may sound. But is there another way of understanding Genesis 22? Yeah. Can, can we pull? Can we just for a moment pull pull back? And before we rush ahead into saying the Bible says that that settles it, can we say the Bible says it, but what does that mean? And what exactly is going on? Is there more going on here than initially meets the eye? And what can culture teach us at that time, the culture during that day? What can we learn from that? Are there some sort of deeper meanings Uh, that are found here in this text? And I believe the answer is yes. And so I'm excited to look at this passage. And we plan on doing this a little bit differently. Lee and I were talking about this. We're going to just go through Genesis 22 and read this whole story. And as we're reading it, we're going to break it down. We're going to give our commentary on it. If at the end of the day, it doesn't make any sense to you, that's fine. But it makes a whole lot of sense to me, which is why I changed my position on it. And I believe that it's a, a, a much better way of reading scripture. It's true to its context. It's true to its history and time and culture. And uh, we're going we're gonna to get into that. I'm going to be referencing some sources as well that I would encourage you to look at. And this is just going to be one little part in my book. One part and one little, it's going to like one little section and one little part of my book is where I discuss this because I really get into cultural accommodation in a, in a whole chapter, but this is just one little section of that. So I'm excited to really delve into this and this gives you a little taste of uh, what's to come as well in my book. Well, and I think that one of the things that this discussion, one of the 
places of value. I'm trying to think of the word, the value in this discussion. There it is. It's been a long week, Uh, but the value in talking about this and doing it the way we're doing it. Some of the conversations I've had with, with the brethren that I used to walk in lockstep with as far as conformity of belief that I've, I've deviated and diverged from that pattern of belief and that way of thinking some of them that I've remained close to some of the conversations we've had is, is well, this way of approaching the scriptures and looking at the scriptures within their context and trying to respect that context and letting the scriptures truly speak for themselves. It's, it's, it is difficult, especially whenever that's not the way you've been taught to study. And I've had really good discussions with different people about this idea and this approach and the approach that we're taking with this story of Abraham and Isaac. And they've wondered, you know, well, how does that work in real life? Like, what does that mean? How does, you know, how do you go about that? Because it really does go deeper than just that surface level, literalistic approach to scripture. And that's not to say that taking a surface level, literalistic approach to scripture, as so many people do, will somehow disqualify someone from service to God. There are so many people that I know that love God. They love Jesus. They you know, pattern their entire lives after serving him and they are devoted to being pleasing unto him and to being the the salt of the earth and that light of that city on the hill. But they look at the scriptures differently than what I do. You know, just because they look at it from that framework doesn't mean they're not real Christians. Yeah. But there are some people like me who were in that mode of thinking And that mode of thinking didn't provide satisfactory answers to difficult passages like Abraham and Isaac. Why would a loving God command someone who's considered a hero of faith to sacrifice his son, to kill him? And why would that man be considered a hero of faith and be considered a just man and be considered a good person when he was willing to do that? That old way of thinking doesn't answer and it really can't answer those questions. Yeah. So this is going to be really good. So let's go ahead and let's get into the meat and potatoes of it. Okay, well, let's let's go ahead and start. Um, we'll just start here in Genesis 22. This is Genesis 22, verse 1. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And those two young men would be uh, servants uh, who, who live with him, who work with him. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So I want to stop right here because there's already something that should jump out at everyone. And that's in verse 3 when God tells Abraham he wants him to offer his only son, uh, his his true son Isaac at this point, and in a sacrifice, which is another way of saying kill your son, it says that he went, he went. There 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 wasn't any type of <laughs> debate. Uh, there's no there's nothing in the context where Abraham goes, huh? Like what? What did you just ask me to do? You you want me to sacrifice my son Isaac? You don't see that. All, all it says is God saying do this. And then it says Abraham rose early in the morning and he did it. And he, he got everything ready. This, this stands out to a lot of people. And you'll hear people really praise the faith of Abraham here and say, wow, imagine God asking you to kill your child. Uh, would you question God? 
Would you ask God, what's he thinking? Abraham didn't. Well, there's already a problem with viewing that whole <laughs> that whole idea through our cultural lens because things were much more different in the times of Abraham than they are today. Just and, a little. Yeah, so, just a little. So here's where it helps for us to understand the cultural context and what's really going on here. Let's start with understanding sacrifice. During the ancient Near Eastern time period, sacrifice, animal sacrifice, food sacrifice, it was common. That, that's, that's how you related to your God. If you wanted to make your God happy, you would offer sacrifice. If there was a famine and there had not been any uh, rain in the land for a long time, your conclusion was that your God or gods, they were angry. So what did you do? You offered more sacrifices. And you would continue to do this until it rained. And then whatever you did when it rained, okay, God's finally pleased. My God or gods are finally pleased. I'm talking not just about the Jews. I'm talking about everyone at this time period during the ancient Near East. That's how they communicated and related to their gods. Well, historically, what we find is that the most precious thing that you could offer to your God was your child. So, so child sacrifice, it wasn't uncommon. This was something that took place. This is something that all people groups during that time participated in. So if you believe that your God was angry or upset, or you believe that your God was going to punish you, then your response is, I need to offer more to my God. And the most precious thing you could offer to your God was your child, specifically your firstborn. So here we have... God, and I'm gonna I'm gonna use the word gods a lot and God so that in my writing it's a lot easier to know and distinguish what I'm talking about. But I'm gonna say Jehovah God to talk about um, the true God of the Bible. And then I'm just gonna say God or gods when I'm talking about all other gods. Okay, during that time, yeah. Not, not that I believe they existed, but just recognizing the fact that people did believe in these different gods. Well, so, and even the Israel did. And, and I oh, think yeah. that's an important point to go ahead and make, you know, just as a quick side note, is Israel believed in the existence of these other gods as well. Yeah. They absolutely. believed that they were real. You know, a, a common misconception is that Israel was always a monotheistic nation, and they really didn't become strictly monotheistic until after the exile and their return to the land. Before that time, Israel was what was considered monolatrous. They believed that the other gods like Asher, Dagon, Baal, etc. They believe that these other, I said Asher, I meant Asherah. Asher was one of the tribes of Israel. But anyway, they believe that these other <laughs> gods existed. They were real, but Jehovah God was ruler above all. He was supreme above all. And so they only served Jehovah, at least mostly, but they still believe that these other gods were real, that they really existed, that they, you know, they took up some of the sacred space in heaven as well. Yeah. And it wouldn't be until much later on in Israel's history before they rejected these other gods entirely and focused on Jehovah and Jehovah alone. Yeah. And, and that's why, you know, when you look at the Ten Commandments, you shall serve God and only him, you know, don't have any other gods before me. It's because they believed in other gods at that time, which is another part of cultural accommodation. But, but you're exactly right that they believed in these other gods and uh, they believed that they were real. They believed they existed. So, so back to the point here of this text, the fact that Jehovah God was asking Abraham 
and Abraham was convinced that his God was asking for a child sacrifice, that shocks us today. That that seems crazy. That's like, what in the world? But back then, that would have not been out of the ordinary. Now, once again, I know that's hard for us to accept because we live thousands and thousands of years later. But at that period in time, it would have not been out of the ordinary for someone to believe that their God was asking them to sacrifice their child. And if they didn't sacrifice their child, if they were convinced their God was asking them to sacrifice their child and they refused to do it, then they felt like they were going to die or the people they loved were going to die. They wouldn't be blessed. And so ultimately they were like, okay, God, my God, I'm convinced my God is asking me to offer a child sacrifice, so I'm going to do it. So here we see this story with God, Jehovah God, saying, Abraham, I've made all these promises to you. Trust me, you need to, you need to kill your son. <laughs> you need to kill him. And Abraham's like, okay, okay. So the reason he's not sitting here questioning is because this was this would have been just the standard fare of the time, okay? You know, want me to do this? Okay, I'm going to do it. So he does it. And he, he gets everything ready. Now, there's another point here, too, that we're about to, to hit on here in a moment, but I want to read it first. So in verse 4, it says, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar that God had appointed. Then Abraham said to his servants, or young men, Stay here with the donkey. Now, what I'm about to say is very important. Um, well, that's what I said, not the Bible. So what I'm about to say, <laughs> if you're reading along, okay, so Abraham... What you're about to read is very about to read, yes. Yeah, so Abraham says, stay here with the donkey. I and the, and the boy, talking about his son Isaac, will go over there and worship and come back to you. Hmm. What is going on here? So wait a minute. God just told Abraham, bring, you know, Kill your son, sacrifice him, and Abraham's like, okay, sure. You know, God's God's asked for children all the time. That's the ultimate sacrifice. So I'm doing what gods do. Okay, I'm gonna kill my son because that's what he wants. But then in verse six, something crazy happens. Uh, or I'm sorry, verse five, something crazy happens. Abraham tells his servants, "Stay here. Me and my son are gonna go up on that mountain and we're gonna worship. But then we're gonna come back down." Now, why is that important? What 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 is the first clue here that there's more going on than meets the eye? Well, first of all, we have to remember that Abraham was already promised by God that his his lineage, his heritage would be continued, but not just through anybody, but through Isaac. He already promised him that. So if if Abraham really believes that his son is going to die and that's going to be it, then obviously that lineage, that heritage is not going to be able to be continued on through Isaac if he's dead. You know, you can't have children if you're dead. So, yep. so Abraham has enough faith. And even the, the writer of, of Hebrews says this. He says that Abraham had so much faith that he believed, even if he did have to kill his son Isaac, that God would immediately raise him back from the dead. And that's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. So most church-going folks already know the importance of this of one part of this story, and that is Abraham's faith. Clearly, Abraham was demonstrating faith in God because on the one hand, God said, hey, Isaac, your son, this is who I'm going to carry the lineage through. 
oh, by the way, I want you to go and kill your son Isaac. So God put this test on Abraham, and we see that being said in the first verse, to basically say, trust me, trust me. I've already told you that Abraham is going to be the one to carry on the seed promise. I already told you that, so trust me. So Hebrews eleven seventeen says Abraham did that. He trusted him to the point that even if he had to kill his son Isaac, he believed that God would raise him back from the dead. And this still seems kind of morbid, though, because it's like, hey, okay, I get it, and, and that's great that Abraham had that faith, but my goodness, like, still seems pretty crazy that God would do that. Why would God accommodate himself to look like all the other gods who want child sacrifices? And why, Lee, I want to bring you into this point, why is that such a, uh, sometimes viewed as a difficult thing, and sometimes even perhaps a contradiction? Well, it's viewed as a contradiction because of the other passages in Scripture that speak to God's position on human sacrifice. If you look at what the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah, um, what is it, around chapter 19 or so, it states that, well, I'm just going to pull that up. It's, I know it's Jeremiah Yeah, it's uh, 19. Jeremiah 19, 4 and 5. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I knew it was in Jeremiah. And I know there's another passage in Jeremiah as well, somewhere around chapter seven or so. But if we go over here to Jeremiah 19 and we check that out, it says in verses four and five, this is the New King James I'm reading from, because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place, because they have burned incense in it to other gods whom neither they, their fathers, nor the kings of Judah have known and have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. That is a reference to child sacrifice. They have also built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come to my mind. So this is a passage that illustrates this and other passages in Jeremiah. It illustrates that God never had it in his mind to ever have child sacrifice or human sacrifice be a part of his plan. And yet here in Genesis, you have him commanding Abraham to go forth and offer his son as a burnt offering. Yeah, and, and you have verses, and I'm just going to read these real quick if you don't mind so people get after can it. see. This isn't just a you know, one-off passage in Jeremiah. So this is stated in the law, Leviticus 18.21, Leviticus chapter 20, verses 2 through 5, Deuteronomy 12.31, Deuteronomy 18.10. It's repeated over multiple times that child sacrifice, human sacrifice, is an abomination. It is condemnable. It is it is horrible. Do not participate in this. Do not do this. Do not be like those who follow Molech. Don't, don't fall into that trap. They're the ones who offer their child sacrifice. This is one of the main reasons when the Bible talks about uh, Israel itself going into these other nations and, and when they're going to be fighting these other nations, one of the, the sins that keeps coming up is, is the sin of Molech, those who offer their children as, as sacrifices. And so we see this in the law. We see this in the Psalms, Psalm 106, 35 through 38. It's detestable. It's horrible. We see this in the prophets condemning it, as you just read in Jeremiah. It's also in Jeremiah 32, 35. It's basically repeated. This whole idea is horrible. It's condemned. God said, no, I would never, ever do anything like that. I not only have, have never commanded anim or child sacrifice or human sacrifice, it's not even entered my mind. That, that's nothing I would even consider. Hosea chapter 13, verse 2, another prophet condemns it. Ezekiel, uh, another prophet condemns it multiple times. Ezekiel 20, verse 31, Ezekiel 23, 27, and Ezekiel uh, 23, 39. So this isn't like there's just this one vague passage that condemns human or child sacrifice in the Old Testament. It is in the law. 
It is in the Psalms and it is in the prophets and it's consistent. This whole message is consistent. Do not participate in animal or child sacrifice. Do not do it. It's horrible. It's an abomination. It's abhorrent. Don't do it. Okay, why then did God start in the very first book <laughs> offering <laughs> a, a, a human, a child sacrifice, or, or com commanding a human or child sacrifice? So I can see if I'm an atheist, okay, or if I'm an agnostic, or if I'm just kind of a Christian and I'm reading this, you know, I'm like, what is going on here? What? Why would? Why would God do this? And the worst answer, the worst answer you could ever give anybody is, well, that's just what God did. That's just what he did. That's, That's just what, what he commanded. He yeah, know? his ways are higher than our ways, Kevin. You it's see, God. you just need you just need to understand his ways are higher than our ways, and he knows more than we do, and we just need to accept that and just do what he says. Kevin. Well, and 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 if you know, we just have to trust God. And even if God's a God of contradiction, that's who God is, and we're just going to follow God. That 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 type, that, and, and I'm being facetious, but that whole type, that approach. That that literalist approach, literalist approach, that's what has hurt so many people's faith. I mean, it's put so many people in a faith crisis because they think, well, what am I going to do here? And and most people, of course, side with with the majority or well, every other passage in the Bible where it's condemned and say, no, it's horrible, it's horrible, it's horrible. Why then would God command something that's horrible and that later was revealed to us that was never even entered into the mind? Of God. Well, clearly it entered into the mind of God because he he commanded Abraham to do it. So what is happening here? What is going on? And how are we to understand all this? Well, let's keep reading unless you have another point you want to bring nah, up. No, nah, no. I think we covered what you said a lot of what I wanted to say. So let's just keep on trucking. Well, I took it from you, man. I'm sorry. No, nah, that's okay. You can steal my thunder, baby. It's all good. As long as it gets said, that's all that matters. All right. So, so here we go. Um, let's continue. All right. So... Abraham looked and said, hey, you know what? We're going to come back together. Uh, Abraham had the kind of faith where even if he he was going to have to kill his son, he believed God was going to raise him back up. So that takes a little bit of the edge off the story, but not really a whole lot. Uh, so verse 7 says, And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Boy, if that, if that question doesn't rip your heart out, I don't know what, what will. You know, where's the burnt offering at, Dad? <laughs> you're it, son. God told well, me to do it. Well, if you're anything like me, you probably had a big three-ring binder or a filing cabinet or something where you had your sermon notes or something you kept your sermon notes in. And back before Kim and I had kids, I, I had a sermon on Abraham and Isaac. I had a sermon on this, and it was essentially the same points that you touched on earlier that, you know, we just need to trust God and be willing to do whatever God says to do, even if it's uncomfortable and, and et cetera, et cetera. And after having kids, as I'm going through some of my old sermon notes, I found that sermon and just reading that verse right there. Yeah. Where yeah. is the lamb for the burnt offering? as a father and, and like it, it's hitting me emotionally right now. I, I think about Seth. He's, he's our oldest boy and he'll be seven in September. And I just think about him looking up at me with those two front teeth missing and saying, dad, we have the stuff to make the altar. We have the stuff to make the fire, but where's our wham? And that's how he'd say it. Where's our wham? And dude, just reading that, I don't know if it was just at the time, you know, when it was, this was uh, uh, back in 2019, whenever I, I came across this, we were going through some old stuff that we had in our bookshelf. And I found that and just seeing that dude, oh man, it hit me hard. Like you just said, if that doesn't rip your heart out, you don't know what does. 
I didn't understand the gravity of this, like fully understand the gravity of what, of, of what's going on here until I had kids of my own. And I thought of myself in Abraham's place and Seth or even Keith in Isaac's place. And it's just, dude, it hits way different then, man. It's powerful. And like you said, if it don't rip your heart out, you're, you've got to be a heartless person. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even have children and I can't imagine just thinking about that. Like I think of my friend's kids who, who were close to, you know, and who we hang out with and then like just them saying something like that and okay, you know, what's going on and, and where's, we got the wood, we got the fire. It looks like we got everything going on. Where's that? Where's the sacrifice at? Oh, you're it, (laughs) you know? And, and it's, it's almost as if people who read this, I, I, and we call them literalist. And when we say literalist, what we mean is we're not saying that derogatory. We're saying that sometimes people over that they, they read a text and they over apply the literalness of what they're reading without understanding the deeper context and what's really going on. And in doing so, no matter how well intended they are, they end up creating a, a God that's actually not found in scripture. And and one of the one of the things I've heard people say is, oh, well, Abra- Abraham's son, Isaac, at that point, wouldn't have been a young boy. He would have been older. What what in the world is that? If, if I'm, I'm 35, if my dad today took me up on a mountain and said, uh, hey, son, you know, we're going to go and worship God. By the way, I'm going to kill you today because God told me to. You think, you think whether I'm eight, five, 35, 65, you think that matters? Like, that's a dumb, no. I mean, I, I'm not being derived. That's stupid. Like, that is, that is, <laughs> to, to think that that takes the edge off of what is going on in this story is, is literally mockable. And, 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 and that's why there are a lot of people who do mock it because it's like, that, that's, that doesn't change anything. It doesn't matter how old your child is. If, if, if you're, if, if you believe you're about to kill your child, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know, people, oh, think about the faith of Isaac. Isaac obviously didn't know what in the world was going on. So, yeah, if he didn't know what was going on, he wouldn't have asked the question. So that to me is is a really good sign that Isaac probably really wasn't all that old. I mean, he may have been a young teenager at that point, but your kid's your kid. I mean, dude, what you're saying there is exactly right. And I think one of the reasons why we tend to revert back to that explanation, because that's that's how I would have explained it before, is because we want to try to make sense of the heinousness of what's being asked. We want to try to, to take some of the sting out of it. Because it really does paint God in a completely different light than what we see the body of the Bible revealing God to be. We see God presented as a loving father. We see God presented as a sovereign, benevolent king. We see him represented fully and completely through the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the ultimate in loving others and loving even your enemies to the point of even death. And so whenever you see God painted in that picture through scripture, and then you come across a passage like this, it's like, well, hold up. How do we make sense of this? And one of the strategies that we utilize whenever we don't fully understand the context, we will try to find different justifications to try to take the sting out of it, to explain it in that way. So 
I mean, you did that. I did that. And we did it. We came by it honestly. Yeah. Because, and, and, and that's yeah. why, you know, when I say stupid, I'm not calling anybody stupid out there who's done the it. Argument is, yeah. But the argument is nonsensical. It's, because it's not a good argument. It, it doesn't help. It, does, it doesn't do anything to lessen the, the consequence or the severity of what's under consideration, whether he was yeah. a little child or whether he was old or grown man or it doesn't matter. And so, so he, so, we have Abraham here. The way he responds, though, is interesting because he says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went off together into to the mountain. So what we have going on here is that, once again, Abraham said that God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So at the beginning, Abraham said, we're going to come back. Okay, he already, he already told his servants, me and Isaac are going to come back. But then we see something in verse 8 that's even more telling because Abraham goes as far to say he's going to provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So we even see now Abraham's getting to the point where he's thinking, okay, God's not going to allow this to happen. Like, like something, something's going on here where I believe and I have enough faith that God's going to provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So they both went off together into the mountain. Verse 9 says, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. By the way, the word bound is kind of interesting. I, I don't know. Have you thought much about that, um, whether you know this was kind of against Isaac's uh, will a little bit? I, I don't know if you've looked into that much. I really haven't. I had always assumed that that was the case because if Isaac was like, well, okay, I guess so, he would have just laid down there. But if he's not going to lay down, then you'd have to bind him up to to force the issue and make it happen, which really paints a whole other layer of brutality onto the story whenever you think about it that way. And to me, that's further evidence that Isaac was probably a younger boy because Abraham's an old man at this point. And yeah. you take someone who's 35 you know, or 30 in the prime of their life, who's strong, they're fast, they're fit, an old man who's you know, because if uh, Isaac was conceived whenever Abraham was, what, 99 or 100? And Abraham's 130 now if Isaac's 30. It's, yeah, that's that's not a fight that Abraham's going to win. Yeah, and and the 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 Hebrew word there, it's only used um, one time. It's only used here in Genesis 22.9. And so I, I don't want to look too much into that. It, the word itself just means to bind, which, you know, that's the way it's translated. But it, it's just interesting there, you know, some have tried to say, oh, well, that's just the way that they did sacrifices back then. And okay, well, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't know if I, this was Abraham's first child sacrifice. So I don't know how he would have known exactly how they do child sacrifices. But so, you know, here you have Abraham like willing to go through. But keep in mind this whole time, this whole time, even Hebrews reveals this to us. Abraham did not believe that Isaac was actually going to die that day. And the writer of Hebrews said Abraham in his mind was willing to do it to the point that even if he did have to do it, he believed God was going to raise him back from the dead. But that doesn't seem to be plan A in Abraham's mind. Plan A is God's going to provide a sacrifice. So yeah. Abraham's all, Abraham, you got to keep in mind, Abraham is doing this with a cultural understanding that God's ask for children. 
that gods ask for child sacrifices, human sacrifice. So that's that's not out of the norm. The second thing you have to remember is Abraham this whole time's thinking, mm, this really isn't going to happen. Like I'm doing this, but this isn't really going to happen because God already promised that Isaac's going to be the one to carry my seed. He's going to be the one to have that seed promise, carry on the lineage and heritage. So here, and I say heritage, lineage is the word I keep uh, I keep meaning to use. Um, so what you see here is is this whole story, man. I hope for most people reading this, this is becoming already eye-opening at this point because we haven't even gotten to the best part. We've not really even gotten to the true explanation yet. So if you're sitting here thinking, boy, Kevin, you're not really helping the situation much. You know, this is this sounds pretty bad. Just it, wait, it's coming. It's about to get a lot better. Don't worry. Okay. So it said in verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Once again, uh, that's that's a, a heart-wrenching passage to read. Uh, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And the angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not held withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, before I go to verse 13, I want us to discuss this just for a minute, Lee, because this is the point of emphasis in most uh, Christian circles. You know, Abraham did, did what he was supposed to do. Abraham was, was, was a man of faith. He was an obedient man, and he trusted God, and this was a test, and Abraham passed the test. There is a lot of validity to that, no doubt about it, because in James 2.23, James talks about Abraham's faith and how Abraham was willing to trust God. Uh, the book of Hebrews, as I've already alluded to, talks about Abraham's faith and how he too was willing to, to trust God. We see that in Hebrews eleven seventeen. So yes, it, it, there's no doubt about it that a big part of this story is, is showing that Abraham really trusts God. And I, I, you know, there's a lot of debate on, well, did God not know that, that, you know, Abraham was going to, going to follow through. I thought God knows everything. This is a, a evil, evil test to put Abraham through. And while all that on the surface, yes, that does sound correct and seem correct. Remember, this would have been no different or this would have not been out of the ordinary for someone to, um, to offer their child. I mean, it was, that didn't make it any easier, but it wasn't like this was just like, you know, 2021 God coming to somebody saying, kill, kill your child to prove to me that you love me. That, that's not a good parallel because this is a completely different culture. But here is where things do finally, finally get easier for us to stomach and easier for us to understand. And that is when something happens, okay? So something already drastic has happened, but before we talk about that, I want to go ahead and finish here, and then we'll break it down. So Abraham, verse 13, says, lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So here is, let's let's kind of bring this all together here and then we'll discuss it. The story ends with a complete role reversal. God stopped Abraham from actually offering his son Isaac. Now, 
Why is that crazy? Well, for recipients who would have heard and read this story thousands and thousands of years ago, the strange part of Genesis 22, as I've reiterated over and over, was not in the fact that a God would ask for a child sacrifice. That, that's not the strange part. That's not the, oh my goodness, a God would ask for a child sacrifice? No, that's like, oh, okay, yeah. That was a common occurrence. The shock factor is that a God would stop the sacrifice from happening. But not only would he stop the sacrifice from happening, Jehovah God, this God, is the one who provides the sacrifice. So you have a role reversal. While Jehovah God first appeared to be like all the other gods at the beginning of this story, oh, God wants my child. <laughs> okay, I guess I got to give it to him. Otherwise, he's going to be angry and he's going to kill me and my family, perhaps. He's going to kill us all. He's going to strike us all with famine. No, 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 no. At first, that's how God was, or, or not was, but that's how he appeared to be in Genesis 22. He, But then he showed himself to be in stark contrast by stopping the sacrifice and bringing his own Instead, So what this story teaches us is, yes, Abraham trusts in God. Abraham had enough trust in God to know that no matter what you ask, you're not really asking me to do this. <laughs> you, you, I, I believe the whole time you were going to provide another way. It's kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know what? You're going to be put in the fiery furnace. They said, well, we trust God. Even if we are put in the fiery furnace, we're not going to burn. We believe. We, we have faith. We know God's going to provide us because there's a promise that he's going to protect us. So you see this happening. Now, throughout the Old Testament, as we've already said, child sacrifice is repeatedly condemned. So God said that it never entered his mind. Well, how could we say God said it never entered his mind? Here's why. Because in reality, in actuality, it would it never entered God's mind that he would actually allow Abraham to kill his son Isaac. That was never part of the plan. It was never anything he had any intention of ever following through with, but it was necessary to demonstrate how Jehovah, how Yahweh is different from all of these other ancient Near Eastern gods that the Israelites still believed in at that time. And in demonstrating that difference, this is the most powerful way that difference can be demonstrated. And if you look at it in those terms, it makes a whole lot more sense, at least in my mind, whenever the genre of Genesis is fully taken into account. You know, we last year, whenever we talked about origins, we talked about Genesis and how Genesis is read, and we talked about that and those stages. If you look at the beginning, and I think we may have touched on this, in the beginning, whenever God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1, you see that given in stark contrast to the way that God is revealed to have created in the Epic of Gilgamesh and in the Atrahasis Epic, whenever you have these gods going to war with each other and spilling blood and you have Marduk and Tiamat fighting it out up there in the heavens and Marduk kills Tiamat, Genesis 1, in, in the eyes of a lot of scholars, a lot of reputable, solid, bona fide scholars, Genesis 1 functions as a polemic against so many of those ancient Near Eastern worldviews about the gods and how the gods behaved and how they worked. Israel is essentially saying about their God, look, your gods have to go to war and they have to do all this. Our God speaks and it happens. Our God doesn't go to war with anybody. Your gods are always in battle and everything else. Our God 
creates everything in six days. He rests on the seventh. And not just that, he invites us to rest with him on the seventh, on his Sabbath, on that day of rest. Our God longs to be with us and he walks with us in the garden. He longs to know us. He provides for us. And it's it's no different with Abraham. You see that polemic. You see this statement being made against the gods of that age. Your gods demand that you offer your child the thing most precious to you, to him, in order to appease his wrath. Our God doesn't demand that. Our God rejects that fundamentally. Our God provides for us. And in the eyes of someone that it, that lived... 6,000 years ago in this realm, that is a revolutionary mindset. That is as wild and as crazy as women voting in the 1920s. I mean, that's as wild and as crazy as the internet now. I mean, think about it. We have all of the knowledge that ever has been in the past right here at our fingertips. I mean, we have vehicles that can travel in excess of 150 miles an hour down the road. And a hundred years ago, people thought if you went over 35 miles an hour, your spine would snap. I mean, it, it's crazy that it, whenever you think about the fact we've gone to the moon, we've sent rovers and robots to Mars. When you sit down and think about that, it's mind blowing. This is just as mind blowing to someone in Abraham's era as all of that should be mind blowing to us today. Yeah, he, he was making a distinction in, in testing Abraham. He was, he was also providing a distinction that would, that would be clear throughout all of Israel's history and even today for us that this God, Jehovah God, is so different. And, it, and if, if you're an atheist or agnostic or if you have dealt with this story in, in, in a negative way in times past and say, how could a God ever command someone to offer their child? The answer is not this one. <laughs> not yeah. Jehovah God, not this one. What seemed like it at first ended up demonstrating that, no, this is not what I accept. This is not how it's going to be. But he was testing Abraham in the process as well because he had already told Abraham, Isaac's going to be the one. Trust me. So even when I ask you to do culturally uh, things that are the cultural norm at the time that seemed to be uh, you know, how's this going to work? How's God going to work? Trust me anyway. Know that I'm going to do it. I mean, we, we serve a God who, who, who says, who says uh, you know what? You can walk through fire without getting burned. You can walk on water without sinking. And, 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 and I'm going to tell you to offer your child. And in reality, the point is, I don't really want you to offer your child. And he's doing this to build trust, to show that I'm a different God. I am a God that provides a sacrifice for you. And ultimately, we all know that, well, I don't know if we all know, but uh, if, if we have studied this in any depth, we, we understand that this foreshadows the fact that one day Jesus would provide, or God would provide his son Jesus as a demonstration of love, that God is the one who provides for us. And I want to get a little bit deeper into this, Lee, because, dude, there's so much. And once again, I'm going to discuss this in my book, but there's another there's a, there's even more to this story because keep in mind that sacrifice was all about providing for your god. That's what it was about. And and during that time, people believed that gods had needs. And part of those needs 
were met through making sure that, that your God had a place to live. That That's where the, the temples come in place, and God accommodated that. He accommodated Israel's understanding. Remember David? He lived in this grand palace, and he was upset because his, his God didn't have a place to live. Well, that's not just David being silly. That's David believing that my God needs a place to live because their understanding was God's lived in places. And yeah. the way that you related and provided for your God was through sacrifice. That That's that's when you read a passages where the Bible talks about Abraham, uh, or not just Abraham, but all of uh, many times in the Old Testament when people were making sacrifices to God, it said that it was a sweet aroma to God. It's not that God's God's like sniffing these sacrifices, going, mm, I love the flavor of, of animal sacrifice in the morning. I mean, that's just, oh, it's great. It gets me going. <laughs> that, that had nothing to do with it. The point is the heart that was behind those sacrifices. But God accommodated that. He he accommodated their understanding because that would have been the only way that they could relate to God. But ultimately, through this story and through the rest of the Old Testament and through animal sacrifice and ultimately through the demonstration of Jesus, the whole... Uh, trajectory is that I am a God that provides for you. You're not going to provide for me. All these other gods, their followers believe that they have to follow uh, or provide for their gods in order to follow their gods. In order to follow me, you just got to trust me. You have to have faith that I am going to provide for you. And is that not the whole story in a nutshell of the Bible? Having faith in God, having faith in ultimately Jesus Christ? Because when 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 we don't have that certainty, when we don't have that feeling, when we're not sure, when things seem like, wait a minute, how could this be happening? And all of a sudden, God just turns the story on its head and teaches us something completely different. I, I, I thought about how can I teach this in such a way where people could get it today? Because we're so far removed. And I've watched a lot of movies period. But I've watched a lot of like sports movies. I love a good sports movie. And there's times when the coach will have his players do all sorts of exercises and it's getting towards the end of the day. And then they they come up against a great hill. That, that shows there's no way they could climb at that point because, I mean, they're tired, they're sweaty, they've been at it all day. And the coach says, one more test. You, you got you to gotta climb up this hill. And, the, and some of the players are like, oh, no, there's no way. And then you have that one or two, you know, there's one or two players that are like, all right, coach, if that's what you, if that's what, you know, the coach says, look, I know you can do it. You're going you're gonna to climb up this hill. And then right before they start, the coach starts laughing and says, dude, what are you, I wasn't going to make you climb up that hill, man. But I, but, I, <laughs> but I know you were willing to do it. I knew you were willing to do it. That's, that's what we see happening with God here. God's like, whoa, Abraham, hold on, hold on. Now I know, man, I know, but I would have never, never allowed you to go through something like this because that's not the kind of God I am. There's the sacrifice over there. And by the way, you knew I was going to provide for this all along, didn't you, Abraham? You knew I wasn't going to let you do this. Man, and so, so, I mean, there's so much here going on that if we just read it or we hear just a little sermon about this, man, we miss all this stuff. We miss all this good, awesome in-depth information, cultural information that just brings this story to life makes so much more sense. It, 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 it's, it's contextually a lot more uh, ac- accurate. Yeah. And, and yeah. yes, it, it definitely uh, sets on the palate a little bit better, but, but it's, but it's more accurate. I mean, culturally you're bringing in all these things. You're not just taking Genesis 22 and reading it in 2021 and saying, Hey, this is, this is what it says. Trust God, that's the message. Yes, that's part, that's only a little bit of the message. 
that's part of the message, but it, it goes so much deeper. And that's why I, that's why whenever we were talking about this last week, I was thinking, man, we really should do a podcast about that because it really illustrates the difference that exists between a strict literalist approach to scripture and a contextualist Christocentric approach to scripture. You know, that's one of the things you and I talk about in our private conversations a lot. And whenever you take a literalist approach, you do miss a lot of these greater points because context, um, I don't want to say it's ignored, but it's not appreciated as deeply as it could be. Because whenever we read the scriptures, like it or not, we read it through 21st century lenses. We read it through our modern eyes and we um, imbue our modern sensibilities and sense of morality into the text. So whenever we read that God is asking Abraham to offer up his son Isaac, that has a great degree of shock value to us. And the only shock value that that would have had to the ancients in in the era in which this this occasion occurred, the shock value would be that well, wait a minute, isn't isn't Isaac the child of promise? Well, okay, that would be the shock value. The shock value wasn't God asking Abraham to offer up his son. That's not shocking to them. That's not something that surprises them in the least. It has that okay, whatever. It's just another day at the office. It's just like going to the bank and making a deposit. It would be the concept of a bank and having all your money represented by a little plastic card you keep in your wallet would be absolutely insane to them because it's not a part of their culture. In our culture, that is what's crazy. God yeah. is asking Abraham to kill his son. But to the ancients, it's not crazy at all. And just like you said, the plot twist that God stops him an ancient person reading that would That's say, absurd. whoa, yeah. what? That's absurd. <laughs> yeah, God like stopped him? That is as absurd, if not more absurd, than God asking Abraham to offer his son is to us. Yeah, that, that That's what's so that, crazy. Yeah, that, that, that was unheard of. God, gods did not stop sacrifices, and they certainly didn't stop a child sacrifice because that would have been seen as the most valuable sacrifice you could offer. So a God would have never stopped the most valuable sacrifice that that's it, it'd be like it would be like turning down a billion dollar jackpot whenever you bent over and you found a lottery ticket on the street it would be like it, it would be like well i'm not going to cash this in this is the one that won and i know it's been all over the news no one knows who the winner is of this but i'm just going to take this and tear it up that is just as preposterous as the idea that god or any god would stop one of their worshipers from offering the greatest sacrifice that they could offer. That is huge. Yeah. And when the con when that context isn't understood, we miss that deeper layer and we miss just how shocking it is that this is a God that provides for his people. He doesn't demand that his people provide for him. And that gets into that, that, role that accommodation plays. You know, sacrifice was a commonplace thing because I can hear, and this is a question that I would ask if I were still in that mode of thinking, well, if that's the case, well then why would God, you know, ask for animal sacrifice in the first place? Why would he do that? And in one sense, there's theological power that demonstrates the power of blood whenever we get to Christ being offered as, as the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of mankind. But also it's accommodative because that's what people understood that 
the gods wanted and needed. Did God need those sacrifices? Did God take joy in them? I mean, we even have passages where the Bible says that God doesn't joy in those burnt offerings. You know, he wants the heart. We see that in the Old Testament. We especially see it in the New. But whenever you see this in view of the entirety of the theme of Scripture and you see the theme and the trajectory of Scripture, whenever this context is understood, this is no longer an outlier. This is no longer a difficult passage in which we see the nature of God as it is revealed in the entire trajectory of Scripture as being a loving, uh, benevolent God. Oh, well, here he is being wicked and evil and capricious, demanding a, uh, a blood sacrifice of a, of a child. Yeah. You know, it's, it, 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 it puts everything into place. It fixed the contextual theme of the Scriptures entirely when that ancient Near East context is understood and applied. Yeah, and God has has always accommodated the culture at the time. He always has. And the, it wouldn't have made any sense for him to come in and try to set up a completely new structure on how to relate to gods. Um, because that, you know, and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I mean, he could have, but that's not the kind of God he reveals himself to be, which is powerful to think about because... You know, God is is very relevant to it, to his culture, to different cultures. And, you know, I used to trust me, I used to be the preacher. And I know you did too, Lee. That's like, hey, we don't need more relevant. You know, it don't matter about how relevant we are today. What we need is the truth. We need the old past, you know, and we just man, get all this stuff. And, and, and uh, you know, I was joking with a friend. I said, there's no doubt in my mind, if Jesus were living today, he'd be probably a, a, a skinny jean preacher, you know, with a few tattoos and maybe even an earring. And people are like, man, that's sacrilegious. Really? That's sacrilegious? If if we can, if if God is a God that's going to accommodate a system like, like, like sacrifice, like animal sacrifice, then I'm not going to put anything past God on how accommodating he's going to be from culture to culture. If he's going to accommodate animal sacrifice, for crying out loud, then what that reveals to us is a lot more about who God is and how God is a very relevant God. And, and God is a very real God. God is a relational God. God is a loving God. God is a different kind of God. And in and, and this story, man, it's so powerful. And there's a lot of other sub points that we could even get into. But the point I want to keep reiterating is we have to understand the deeper meaning. And, you know, people, and I'm kind of getting off point a little bit here, but people will say, well, wait a minute, Kevin. I just disagree with you, man, because, well, everything you're saying, you know, like you guys have had to study this stuff and you ought to go to all these outside sources. I believe you should just be able to give the Bible to somebody and they they should just be able to understand all this stuff. I talk about that in my book and how that is a complete misrepresentation of what the Bible is. That is a, a an idea that is 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 not only not found in Scripture, but considering the fact that those in the first century, uh, only about one to two out of 10 could read and write. They certainly couldn't just open up their Bibles and start reading because they heard these letters that were read maybe once or twice to them. And they had to rely on their memories and, and group memories and things of that nature. But the point is, is that when, when you, when you think of just who God is, the Bible, if we're going to take the Bible seriously, this whole two-step approach to scripture where I give it to some, or, you know, I, I have the Bible or I give it to somebody and I read it and I apply it. That is a shoddy way of understanding the Bible, and it, it has always resulted in disastrous results. We have to take the Bible and respect it much more. You know, people people have accused me, you don't respect the Bible anymore. No, no, I respect the Bible more than I have ever respected the Bible in my life because before I respected my own interpretation 
of the Bible more than I did the Bible itself. I respected the microwavable approach to Christianity that America has taught. Oh, you just read the Bible and you're just a master at it. You know, it, it, Lee, no. it'd, be the, it'd be the same thing, you know, as me taking one jujitsu class and say, okay, Lee, I've done it, brother. Come on. I'm going to wear you out, boy, because I know this thing. People, they, they, they grab the Bible and they read like one article or, or one, you know, about a subject or they read like a couple chapters and they think they're ready to go. And that's not how the Bible was written. And so that's why my book's called Blinded by the Bible, because when we don't understand the culture, we will be blinded. And when we are blinded, we will do things crazy like, oh, I don't know, you know, what did the scribes and Pharisees do? They crucified Jesus for crying out loud. Why? Because they had allowed their understanding and ideology. They took a two-step approach to Scripture. I read it and I applied it, Jesus, and you're not the Messiah because you don't fit within my own projection of the Bible. So when that happens... We're blinded. And so when people say, oh, this just seems very involved, brother, you better believe it's involved. Yes. If we're serious, if we're taking our faith serious, we've got to be involved. We have to to be willing to test all things. We have to be willing to get deep into this, man. I'm preaching now. I'm about to invitations coming up next. But <laughs> but, but the, the, the whole point here is that there are a lot of materials out there and we have to be willing to study these and to respect the Bible and to when something doesn't set right, there's probably a reason for that. When, when when something goes against the narrative arc and the character of the Bible, there's probably a reason for that. And, and it's, it's something that we shouldn't just ignore or blindly accept, but we should be willing to question. I want to just throw out real quick, we're not pulling this stuff out of thin air. Uh, one of the best books that I recommend on understanding the ancient Near Eastern culture is a book by uh, John Walton. It's called Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament Introducing the Conceptual World of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, he has a lot of references in there. It's a it's a very um, very uh, in depth book, <laughs> and I, I was going to say boring. It's not a boring book, but um, he has so much research and information. Um, I mean, it's just it's just packed full of references. That's a good book. Um, another just peer reviewed article that gets into child sacrifice and spe specifically in ancient Israel. We didn't even get into this, but there were uh, a lot of Israelites who were actually offering child sacrifices to God. That's why they were upset. So there's a lot of evidence, both biblically and externally, meaning historically, that Jews did sacrifice their children uh, to both pagan gods and even Jehovah God himself, which is why we have Jeremiah as a representation of God saying, no, this, this, this was never commanded by God. It didn't even enter into his mind. And uh, so there's an article there um, called Child Sacrifice in Ancient, Ancient, uh, Ancient Israel. And uh, it was written in December 2017. It's a peer-reviewed study, and it's it's very good. Once again, a lot of references there. But um, this, this stuff is incredible, man. It changes the way that I read the Bible. I don't think people have to know this in order to go to heaven. Don't get me wrong. I don't think people have to... Um, you know, be academics in order to have a faith in, in Jesus. But I do think people uh, need to educate themselves so they don't allow themselves down a road of atrocity. And so many people have. And when that happens, then yes, it is vital people study. Otherwise, they're going to lose their faith or they're going to create a God that actually is not in the Bible. Well, and I think that's exactly right. I mean, one thing that the Bible does incredibly well, and you can just pick it up and read it, is you can meet Jesus there. Yeah, you, absolutely. You, you read the Gospels and you meet Jesus. You see Jesus. You see the full representation, the fullness of God and everything about who God really is and the reality of God represented in the person of Jesus Christ. 
You see his pure love for mankind. You see the overabundance of love that God showers on humanity through the offering of his son. And you have Isaac and the ram in the thicket as a foreshadowing of that event. You have that as the precursor and you have Jesus as the ultimate realization of that sacrifice. You see that about God. And if there's something in scripture about God and his nature that seems to violate that picture of Jesus, then there's something else going on. And I really appreciate you saying that. But in order to understand what it is that's going on there and to get a fuller, deeper appreciation for what the Bible is and why it exists in the manner that it does and why it says the things that it does, we need to understand the context. We need to understand the context behind, well, like marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Whenever that is understood, it completely changes the game as far as how that application works in the real lives of Christians. Whenever we understand who God is, And we understand the context about these passages like this in Abraham, some of these difficult passages, then it lays to rest so many of the questions and the troubles and the heartaches that people have whenever they wrestle with passages like these. And it's, it's, it's very important for us to have a willingness to dive deep, to examine those things so that we're not left or we're not trying to leave God holding the bag. So that we're not casting aspersions at God that he doesn't deserve simply because we are so far removed from the context that we don't get it. Yeah. And a lot of times that's what happens. We don't get it. And we arrive at these conclusions because we either, either we don't understand because we've never been taught. We don't understand because our approach to scripture doesn't allow us to go there, or we don't understand because we haven't done the work. Either we just haven't done it yet, we're too lazy to do it, or we don't care to do it. And I I think a lot of times there are people that fall into that last trap because they have the same mentality that you and I had. Oh, well, I just read the Bible and just take it for what it says. And here you are over here, Kevin, adding your interpretation to it. You see, I just take it for what it says. And then it's like, well, okay, let's turn over to Mark 9. And the next time something happens, then cut off, next time you sin, cut off your hand and get video of it. Well, wait, 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 hold up. That's not what that means. Hey, I just read the Bible and here you are adding your interpretation to it. Hey, now. Bible well, says Bible says to give to anybody who asks. So I would like $500 in your car, please. Please, please, you know, please. I ask, so you got to give it to me. Bible says yeah. pray, pray in your uh, your room, go in your closet and close the door. The Bible, you know, the the Bible says so many things and it's it's kind of ironic how I used to be because I understood the importance of context on some things, but others I would just brush right by. And, yeah. and it wouldn't be, you know, because we all like, no, like nobody believes that we're to cut our right hands off or pluck our eyes out. Uh, you know, we did the, the lessons on uh, pornography. I can go ahead and tell you, I, I wouldn't have any of my hands, any of my legs or any of my eyes, um, <laughs> you know, by like the age of like 13. So when, when you, when you take all these things into consideration, we say, oh, well, that's uh, you know, we need to understand that's hyperbole and uh, Jesus was, was just, you know, exaggerating, you know, well, what happens in John six, when Jesus said, do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that's to everlasting life. Okay. I guess it's wrong. If you have a job that you're, you're 
uh, working for, or you you have a job that's paying the the your grocery bill because the Bible says don't work for food that perishes. Are you in sin? So so understanding, and and we really are kind of getting off here, but just understanding the literary context and understanding the cultural context. Which, by the way, that's exactly what my book's about. I'm going to get into all the the literary accommodation, the cultural accommodation, the authorial accommodation. I'm going to be getting into all these things in specifics and doing so in such a way where it builds upon itself to understand what the Bible's purpose is. What what actually what's like the point of the Bible at the end of the day? And and unless we can answer that question, and even if people don't agree with my answer, unless we can actually answer that question, if we just stick to the oh, well we just follow the Bible. That's such an oversimplification because no one just follows the Bible. We we all come away with our own understandings of what it means and some of those understandings are more valid than others. And if that's the case, how do we determine what's valid and what's not valid and what's more valuable or what's more reasonable? And that's that's why I believe um, having this approach to Scripture is so important that that Lee and I are discussing and considering all of these things, cultural and, and, and the, the uh, literature, all of those different things, the situation, knowing who God is is vital. And I, the more that I study, the more that I talk to other people, the more that I observe Christianity as a whole, both past and present, the more that I re- have come to the conclusion I really didn't know who God was. I, I had a, no. I, I created God in my own image because I created the Bible in my own image. I had projected onto the Bible what I wanted the Bible to be. It's kind of like when you go on a date with someone, and like they don't like you at all. And, 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 you know, but the whole time you're projecting that they do. And so you're, you're just really misreading the individual because of your expectations and projection. And you go away like, oh yeah, yeah. She loved me, man. This is going to be awesome. Like this date went great. And then you talk to the girl and she's like, no, that was horrible. It was the worst I've ever been on. <laughs> I, I, I think sometimes we do the same thing with the Bible. We, we, for lack of better words, we date the Bible in the sense of we have a relationship with scripture which is why the subtitle's called Rethinking Our Relationship with Scripture, because we go, okay, this is what the Bible is to me. And when we do that, we're literally um, ter- we're creating a form of idolatry because it's not about what the Bible is to you. It's what is the Bible to God? <laughs> and, and if we can't answer yeah. the, question, the question of what is the Bible to God, we will never be able to get to that point. What does it mean to me? That, that doesn't mean that we don't need to answer that question because clearly we're going to all have to figure out a way to apply the Scriptures. But before we say, what does it mean to God? What did it mean? Or what does it mean to me? What did it mean to God? You know, what, what, why, like, why is there a Bible in the first place? So these questions are deep and they need to be explored and we need to engage with this information. And so I hope that this is just a taste. And if you like this, there's a whole lot more to come, especially in my book, whenever it's written. I've, goodness Lee, every time I think I'm done with it, I write, I read another book because I'm really trying to do my due diligence and I don't want to overstate any, anything. I don't want to understate. I want to make sure I'm being fair. I'm not being antagonistic. I want to try to be as honest as I can. So I'm up to about 60 books I've read, not including conversations or articles, uh, peer reviewed studies that I've read. That's just about 60 books I've read specifically for this book. And so I'm I'm super stoked, man. I'm excited because it has it has helped me understand who God is, who, what the purpose of the Bible is, and just it's it's lit me on fire, man. It's 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 so I'm so excited about it. 
Well, I'm excited to get to read it. And that's I, and everything that you just said, that's one of the reasons, that's the main reason why I wanted to do this episode on this idea, because it's a great illustration of those two viewpoints and what an evolution of one's perspective on the scriptures can lead to. It can lead to a deeper understanding. It can lead to a better understanding. And as, as we bring this conversation to a close, if we summarize all of this, the old way, I'd, I'd like to go ahead and just kind of compare the two different perspectives. You know, in a if you take this passage, Genesis 22, under consideration, and you look at it through that old literalistic lens that's colored by our subconsciously by our 21st century worldview, you have a God that is capricious. You have a God that's a cruel prankster. He's not unlike Loki from the Avengers movies. He is playing tricks. He is being cruel. He's being wicked. He doesn't really know what's going on. Oh, now I know that you're going to be faithful. You have a picture of God that doesn't suit the scriptures. It doesn't suit the overall trajectory. In this, you have Abraham, who's called a good person, who we really can't say is a good person because he's willing to kill his kid. But whenever we look at it through that cultural lens, those issues are gone. Whenever we look at it and we understand that culture and we take a contextual approach to scriptures, those problems, they disappear. God is no longer a wicked God. God is differentiating himself from the other gods by asking Abraham to do something that while pretty wild was not unheard of and was actually commonplace in that realm and in that time. Abraham is no longer a wicked, evil person because according to those ancient Near Eastern moral standards, he was doing something that everybody did at that point. And yet we see God providing. We see God stepping up in a big way and providing. And whenever we see that trajectory carried forward in Scripture, we see that revealed about God. And that's the big thing. You know, for us, we focus on Abraham and the sacrifice, but the focus should be on God and his provision of a sacrifice. We see that ultimately realized in Jesus. We yeah. see God bringing Jesus to us and him being the sacrifice for us, which is the ultimate statement of love for mankind. And we see that reflected throughout the entirety of scripture. So it, it's beautiful to see how a contextual understanding of the scriptures leads to a deeper appreciation for God and who he really is and who God actually reveals himself to be in actuality rather than that God that we create and construct in our mind because of our predisposition towards who we expect God to be in scripture. Yep. And, and I want to just reiterate that when you look at the, the greater meta narrative going on, you know, what's really going on here, you see it over and over again, Abraham even emphasizing God will provide. You see it in verse 8, God will provide. He, he, he will bring a lamb. You see it before when he even tells his servants, we're going to come back. God's going to provide. You see it in verse 14, the Lord will provide. And, and that was the, the on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. I have provided, you know, God has provided the sacrifice. That's what's going on here. And we're probably repeating ourselves a lot, but that's because this is new information probably to a lot of people listening to this. And, and, and when you go back and read it, and I would just encourage you now with, with this new filter, whether you accept it or not, I challenge you just to go back and read it this way 
and ask yourself, huh, that does seem to make a lot more sense than God who condemns child and animal sacrifice all throughout the Old Testament. It's in the law, it's in the Psalms, it's in the prophets, all being condemnable would, would, would do it. Um, so that's not what God actually did here. And, and there's just more going on in this story. And, and I hope that this has been something that's edified you, that's encouraged you as the audience, because as I said before, this stuff is just mind blowing. When you start studying, I am so excited the more I dig into this, because I'm like, wow, God is so much bigger, so much more loving than I could ever, ever imagine. And God is so accommodating. He's such a different God than I realized. And that, that does change everything. It really does. He's so much bigger than the boxes that we've put him in. He's so much bigger than those theological boxes that our old preconceptions forced him into. Well, that can't be who God is because it goes against my level of understanding. And all of that melts away whenever you begin to look at the Bible for what it actually is and appreciate it within its context. So uh, this has been a really good talk, man. Do you have anything else that you want to throw in there before we wrap it up? I think I've said it. (laughs) (laughs) You got fired up again, baby. Well, to all of our listeners, we really want to hear back from you guys. We did a little different this time in that we didn't just kind of mention the passage and then summarize it. We actually read through what we wanted to read through. If that's something that you would like for us to do more often, please let us know. If you're like, no, dude, that's too much. Go back and do it the old way. We like that way better. Let us know. If you like this way, let us know. And we'll do a few more episodes like this. We'll we'll kind of we won't do every one of them like this, but we'll try to kind of have more of a more of a blend of it. Yeah, or if there's a but, passage where somebody's like, hey, I would like, you know, to for you guys to just go through this. And look, we're not the authority. Okay. And so I always want to let people know we're giving our understanding because that's all I can all I can give is my understanding. And I am, and as I study and I grow, I think this is why it's, we've, we've named, well, I know it's why we named our podcast Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace, because this is a safe place to explore. And so if there's a passage or a story that's, hey, this is really bothersome, can you guys give kind of maybe your take on this? And, and, because there are some things that are in scripture that are, that are kind of bothersome. And, on the surface, at least they're bothersome. And so the more that, that we can talk about it, let's not ignore it. Let, let's not just give a canned answer and say, Oh, don't worry about Genesis 22. Yeah. Abraham, he, Isaac probably wasn't a kid. He was an adult. That story. Ah, that's not a big deal. You know, let's actually engage the information and, and try to come away with a valid contextual cultural uh, understanding uh, exegesis of the text to make sure that we're doing the best we can. And even then, yeah, we can be wrong. Sure. I, I understand that. I believe I can be wrong. I know I've been wrong. I'm wrong on something right now. I'm sure of it. And I'm going to be wrong in the future. <laughs> but but thankfully, my, my relationship with the Lord, just like my relationship with my wife, as by the way, the Bible describes our, you know, as a marital relationship, it's not, it's not predicated on me getting everything right. If that's, if that's the truth, me and my wife, we wouldn't, Shoot, we our marriage would have broken up a long time ago if it was predicated on me getting everything right. So, so that's why it's safe. It's safe to explore. It's it's safe to explore faith and pursue grace. <laughs> 
Absolutely. And that's what we always need to be in pursuit of. That's what we need to be willing to extend to others, even when we disagree, especially when we disagree. So thanks, brother. This is a great talk. I enjoyed it. I hope that all of you out there listening get as much out of this as what we have. We also want to thank you guys very, very much because it was earlier this month. We crossed the 10,000 download threshold. Our audience is growing every day. It's growing slowly, but it's growing surely. So thank you all for sharing our podcast with your friends. Please continue to do so. Give us that five-star review on the platform that you listen to us on, the platform of your choice. Share it with others. Reach out to us if you have any questions, if you have any passages you'd like for us to cover, difficult passages, you know, anything at all. You know, we're not going to make any promises that we'll cover everything that you guys holler at us about. But if it's something that's interesting and we we get several people saying the same thing, we'll definitely, definitely put it near the top of our list. Uh, thank you all so much for everything. Drop us a line. Our email's in the show notes below. We wish you all well, and we will see you all soon.